You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me once again to listen to a few reflections to help us to grow in our faith. Uh, Archbishop Sheen is a master teacher. Of course, he has the grace of the sacrament of being a bishop who is responsible for teaching the faith. And uh, today we're going to share the story of Fatima. Uh, We are approaching the 100th anniversary of the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima, And uh, so I thought it would be a good idea to share this program with you today. Uh, Bishop Sheen did uh, a feature on Fatima in his uh, Life is Worth Living broadcast in the 1950s. And so we'll replay that for you today. And we'll also follow that up with a catechism lesson on the church entitled The Body of Christ. And of course, when we pray the creed, we know this to be true, that we are the body of Christ, which is the church. And so I ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy these reflections today. But before we do that, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection now on Our Lady of Fatima. Friends, the subject of this telecast is a movie and an historical event. The movie was produced by Warner Brothers. Our Lady of Fatima. We asked Mr. Jack Warner if he would permit us to show a section of that classic film on this particular show. And the graciousness and the immediacy and the spontaneity of his ascent has made us indeed his debtor. The historical event is that upon which this particular film was based. And it is of the historical event, first of all, that we would speak before we show you the movie. The event itself might be called almost the birthday of the modern world. Because it was on that day that the forces of good and evil seemed to reach their peak. Our modern world, with its great crisis, began on the date 
of October 13th, 1917. We will take you quickly to three cities and show you what happened on that day, first in Moscow, secondly in Rome, and third in a little village in Portugal called Fatima. October 13th, 1917, Moscow. Maria Alexandrovich, a young Russian noble lady, was teaching religion to a group of 200 children in the Church of the Iberian Virgin. And suddenly there was a distraction. Horsemen entered the front door, down the middle aisle, vaulted the communion rail, destroyed the icons, the statuary, the altar and then attacked the children, killing many of them. Maria Alexandrovich ran out of the church screaming. She knew that there was an imminent revolution with the communists, and she went to Lenin, whom she knew, and she said, a most terrible thing has happened. I was teaching catechism to my children. Horsemen came in, charged them, and killed some of them. Lenin said, I know it. I sent One of the events that heralded at the beginning of the terrible communist revolution that has since harassed the world. Rome, October 13th, 1917. The same hour, midday. Church bells are ringing all through the city. The joyful events. A bishop was being consecrated. His name, Eugenio Pacelli. A man who then was not very well known, but who one day would come face to face with this great revolutionary force and would become the greatest spiritual force in the world against him. After his consecration on that 13th day of October 1917, he went to Munich. At that particular time, the communists were very strong. They were under the leadership in Munich of Karl Liebknecht, and then one of those curious women that communism spawned. Rosa Luxemburg. And an order went out to kill 325 so-called enemies. And one of them was this same Archbishop Eugenio Pacelli. The commander of the Southern Communist Army, whose name was Eiler, Brother Seiler, and his aide-de-camp, Bronngrad, brought in some soldiers with hand grenades. Seiler himself was armed got into the house by a kind of a ruse, and they hid behind a curtain, waiting for the footfall of this man of whom we're speaking. And as he walked down the corridor, Siler was hiding behind a curtain. And he threw out his gun to shoot him, and the gun struck the pectoral cross on his breast, fell to the floor. Archbishop Pacelli reached over and picked it up, handed it back to Siler. 
said, here's your gun. Kill him if you wish. I am only interested in the souls of my people. Tyler and Ron Grant went back and they were unable to explain why they did not get their man. They could not explain why they were haunted by that lean figure. There was only one thing they did know, and that was that from that time on, that man would be afraid of absolutely nothing in all the world. That man became Pius XII. And that pectoral cross that he was wearing that night, I am wearing now. Pius XII, he gave it to his esteemed friend, his eminence Cardinal Spellman, who this evening kindly gave it to me when I told him I wished to speak of this incident. October 13th, 1917, there's a little village in Fatima where three little children, Maria, Asinta, and Francis, were gathered expecting a revelation. They had said that Mary, the mother of God, had appeared to them. It was not surprising, of course, that she had. It might very well have been. The Lord came through her. Through her, he worked his first miracle. And then from the cross, he commended us all to her. With his kind words, Behold, Thy mother. The children said that the lady had appeared to her before. Appeared to them before on the 13th of April, May and June, July, 19th of August, and the 13th of September. And in the course of the revelation, something very interesting was said, which goes to show there's something more important in this world than politics. It was said by the lady that this world war will end in a little over another year. Now remember the date, October 13th, 1917. We went to war that year on Good Friday, our country. The war did end in a little over another year on the 11th of November, 1918. Then the lady told the children to tell the world that there would come a great era of peace to the world if the world would only return to God. And Russia would be converted. But, she said, if the world does not return to God, the close of the next pontificate that is to say, in the year 1936, there will be the beginnings of a second world war in Spain. So evidently, heaven regarded that civil war as the beginning of World War II. And then she said, but to prevent it, I ask that men do penance and prayer and return again to God. If they do not do penance, there will come World War II will be more terrible than World War I. Nations will be destroyed, cities blotted out, the good will suffer persecution, 
Russia will spread its errors and persecution throughout the world, and the Holy Father himself will suffer much. Then she gave a word of hope, but in the end, God will triumph. The Second World War need not have come. It was unnecessary. Wars are not just made by politics. Wars are crises and judgments that come upon us because of the way we live. But there had to be some sign that this revelation was true. And 70,000 people gathered at Fatima this particular day with the children. Now what is interesting is that most of them were unbelievers. Portugal in those days was anarchistic, communistic, atheistic, anti-clerical. They came out of curiosity. Some of them doubted, most of them doubted that anything would happen, but the children said that the lady told them that there would be a great miracle, which would be a proof that she had actually appeared. And the proof was what was called the miracle of the sun. The sun, according to the testimony of these 70,000 people, and also according to the testimony of the atheistic anarchistic newspapers, which I read, which indeed were very interesting, because they said, this actually happened, but we hope that nobody will interpret it in a divine way. And the sun seemed almost to detach itself, and to become like a great silver ball, and then shooting out sparks in all directions. It almost precipitated itself, or so it seemed, precipitated itself upon the people, and they shouted to God for prayer. Prayer and supplication and in sorrow, and in contrition. Miracles took place in the sights of them all. No, it rained all the time. When this phenomenon had taken place three times, everyone found that their clothes were dry. From that time on, Fatima became kind of a gathering place of all of the people of the world believed that peace was made somewhere else than at the tables of politicians. Namely, peace was made by prayer, and reparation, and expiation, sacrifice. On October 13th, 1951, I was at Fatima, and there were one million They gathered the night before, and all night long it rained. One of those cold rains on one of these Portuguese mountaintops. But they stood and they knelt, and they prayed for the peace of the world. I stayed with them till three o'clock, and I was one of the few that had a cot. I went in and laid down, I was tired. 
but you could not sleep. The luxury of a cot. And here are a million people, most of whom are walked 50, 75, and 100 miles over during several days in order to do penance. So the only thing to do was to get out of bed and pray with them through the night. And then the next morning, pray for the peace of the world. And when Warner Brothers did this particular film, they left the realm of imagination and technique. And they went to Fatima that particular night in the close of the particular film, which you are about to witness, shows the crowd that particular night that I was there. Now, the film. Oh, wait. Our lady was there. I didn't see her, but I know it. Oh, three crazy children. We were cheated. The sign shows the sign.
saith, there is no God. Where the people of Fatima in 1917 erected this simple arch, there now stands a magnificent basilica. And on October 13, 1951, a million people from all over the world gathered here to do homage to Our Lady of Fatima. white handkerchiefs, waving an affectionate greeting to the White Lady of Peace. As I stood there on that altar, overlooking that great crowd of one million people, all of them waving the white handkerchiefs as white flags of purity, in tribute to peace and to the Lady of Peace. My mind left that white square and went to the red square of Moscow, where there were red flags, tied red in the blood of the victims. Somehow I felt that on this day, there was the great crisis between the white square of Fatima and the red square of Moscow. Somehow or other, one felt certain and secure about peace. If we could just magnify this crowd and these petitions and this spirit throughout the world. And in my imagination, I could see a great change coming over the hammer on the sickle. I could see that hammer that had beaten down so many homes and profaned so many sanctuaries. I could see it being held aloft by millions of men, and looking now like a cross. And that sickle, which the communists use to cut human life like unripe wheat, I now saw as changing its figure and its symbolism and becoming, as the book of the Apocalypse said, the moon under the lady's feet. This is the way to peace. World War II need not have happened if men had returned to God. World War III need not happen. And it will not happen if we as a nation return again to God. If there is a Cold War here and a Cold War anywhere else, it is because our hearts and our souls are not on flame with love of God. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection.
you can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection about the story of Fatima, and uh, he's still warning us. I mean, it is something about when he talks about World War II didn't have to happen if we had just prayed for peace and warned us about World War III. So uh, this is the thing about Bishop Sheen. Uh, many of the things that he said are ringing true today. So let us continue to pray. And so now let us uh, continue to learn our faith together. We will share a catechism lesson with you on the body of Christ, which is the church. So please enjoy. Peace be to you. After having reviewed the life of our blessed Lord, and also his revelation of himself as the Son of God, and also his bond to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. We now come to the subject of the church. What do you think of when you first hear the word church? An institution? An organization? kind of an administrative body. Well, you are to be very much excused if you think of it that way because it's partly our own fault. It is the way we have too often presented the church. Now we will talk about the church in other words, namely in terms of the people of God and as the mystical body of Christ. As we look at history as revealed in the Bible, not as the inspired word of God as yet, but as an historical record, we find that it is God that is always in search of man. It is not man in search of God. Man does seek God, but not with the same intensity with which God seeks man. Just think of how much the thought of man and the love of man is in the mind and heart of God. 
What is the first reflex thought that we find in sacred scripture of God? Not the first description of him creating the world, but the first thought that he has about himself and within himself. He would almost guess that, well, his first thought would be about his life and his truth and his love. And yet, that is not the first thought in Scripture. Open Genesis and you will find it. God's first thought about himself is, let us make man. Think of it. As if God could not exist without man. God does not need man to complete himself, to fulfill a need. But he needs man as a kind of a gift. That is to say, he must have someone to whom he can show his love. Therefore, the first monologue that we touch in sacred scripture is the monologue of God thinking about man. What are the first dialogues in scripture? The first question in scripture is God saying to man, Adam, where art thou? Man, why are you hiding? Why do you run from me? And the next dialogue is about the neighbor. God says to Cain, where is thy brother, Abel? God is immersed in the thought of man. And here we find the first two laws, really, of God, love of God and love of neighbor, in the two questions, man, where art thou? Where is thy brother? Now, this was at the beginning of humanity. And we find, therefore, that humanity receives a call from God to intimate communion with himself. God will not let man go. But how does he deal with humanity when humanity begins to multiply? In this way, out of all of the peoples of the world, he chooses one people who are to be what he calls his people. And this group, this corporation, this special people, are to be the means of bringing salvation to everyone else in the world. Now, who were his people? His people were the people of Israel. And he called them first through Abraham. Then he governed them through Moses. He ruled them through the judges and the kings. He threatened, he pleaded, he coaxed, he warned, he loved through the prophets. And over and over in the Old Testament, we find that God who loves humanity deals with them through this particular group. And in his own words, God says in the book of Exodus, You shall be my peculiar possession above all people. 
for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. And again, God speaks and says, you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And through the centuries, these facts stand out. God has a special name for his people. He calls them in Hebrew a kahal. We will often use that word. It means God's elect, his chosen ones, Israel. The word is used about 200 times in the Old Testament. Later on, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, that word kahal was translated by ecclesia. Ecclesia in Greek means church. We get the word of ecclesiastical from it. Hence, whenever you hear the word kahal, or people of God, you may think of it in Greek as ecclesia, or in English as church. That's the first point. Secondly, God always dealt with his people through one man whom he appointed as head and as representative. Abraham at one time, Isaac another, Jacob, Moses, kings and prophets. And thirdly, because Israel was his people, made a treaty with them, a pact, a covenant, and agreement. This involved mutual obligations. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith. You've often heard that word. It appears 275 times in the scripture. And berith means that they owed something to God and God, in his turn, would bless them. And as he said, above all the nations of the earth, they would be blessed. Israel was therefore to be his witness that God had placed them in the world. That the plan that he had for the salvation of all mankind would be effected through them. And finally, You've heard this when we spoke about all of the prophecies concerning our blessed Lord. And finally, that the fulfillment would come the day that Christ himself would appear. This would be the perfection of all of the prophets. This is why the people of God were chosen. To be the vehicle. To be the seed. Out of which redemption would come to the world. Then finally, one day... When the fullness of time came, Christ did appear. And when he appeared, there was fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah's. Or rather, Ezekiel it was, who said, I myself will seek my sheep. And I will visit them. 
So now God appears in the form of human nature, takes upon himself the form of a man. One day, a beautiful woman, a virgin, brought a child to an old man. It was in the temple of Jerusalem. The old man's name was Simeon. He had often said a prayer, a prayer that many Jews were saying in those days because they knew that the time was near for the coming of the Messiah. We already mentioned that Herod, who was not a Jew but an Edomite, was not surprised when the wise man came. He said he would bring gifts, but the gift that he promised to bring was the sword. Now there are some flowers that open only in the evening. Simeon, the old man, was one of those flowers. And imagine the ecstasy of this old man when he embraced this child. And his first words were, Now I'm ready to die. This is the end. This is all I've lived for. And he speaks to the mother. And he says, now notice how he speaks of Israel and the Gentiles. Remember that we said that the people of God were to be a light to all the nations of the world? Now Simeon looks backwards and forwards. He looks backward to the people of God of which he was a priest. And he says, this is the glory of thy people Israel, this babe. And he looks forward. This is the light which shall give revelation to the Gentiles. In other words, he saw in this babe the maker of a new covenant, the founder of a new kahal. He also saw in him a sign to be contradicted by the very people to whom he came to bring salvation. So that this Christ who was born was not, as you see, just someone who came by surprise. He's related to all of the people of God through the centuries. And if you pick up the Gospels and read the two genealogies of our blessed Lord, you will find that in one instance, the genealogy of our blessed Lord goes back to Abraham. And another genealogy goes back to Adam. What does this mean? It means that this new head of the Kahal, this expected of the nations, this God-made man, this Christ is related to the people of God were to be the instrument of the salvation of the world. When then in sacred scripture you come to a hearing about our blessed Lord founding a church or a kahal or a people of God, you must not think that this is an innovation. Everything that our Lord is saying is related to this people of God in the Old Testament. 
and see how he sustains that relationship. First of all, he chooses 12 apostles. It is very likely that they were even related to the 12 tribes in some way. Now to those 12 tribes, or rather those 12 apostles representative of 12 tribes, he chose one as his representative. We will find out his, his name later. Looking back on the old law, he also said, I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So he gathers these new people around himself in order to renovate and revivify Israel, to make a new Israel. And if the old Israel would reject him, he would not eventually reject Israel. Prophet Hosea in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament says that we of the new Kahal, we the new people of God, are only a branch that is grafted on to the tree. We are not the root. Israel is the root. St. Paul foretells a day when the root will be glorified. In other words, it will surpass the Gentiles in glory when Israel returns. When our Lord does come to use the word kahal, he calls it my kahal. I will found my church, my people. And the bond that Christ establishes with this new kahal is not a bond of, uh, not a bond of law. It's a bond of love. And the very best moment for establishing this bond was, of course, a banquet where his twelve sat about him in love. Just as Moses often sprinkled blood upon the people as a sign of covenant, so he said he will make a new covenant, a new pact, a new testament. And there will not be the sprinkling of the blood of goats and bullocks and sheep. He gave his own blood and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new testament, the new pact. This is the bond that will unite all of my people together. Now do you see that the church is not an institution? Maybe you've often said, I do not want an institution standing between God and me. Well, that's right. After all, you have a right to communication with God. But the church is not that kind of an institution standing between you and God. Israel was not between the world and God. Think of the church in somewhat the fashion of a body. Do you ever say, for example, as you listen to me, I do not want your lips and your eyes and your hands and so forth standing between me and you? After all, how can I communicate anything to you? Except by something visible and tangible and, and carnal? 
Anything visible that you see about me or will ever see about me is nothing but a sign of an invisible soul. The carnal is the token of the spiritual. So when our blessed Lord came to this earth and took upon himself a human body, you would not say, I do not want this body of Christ standing between me and my love of Christ. Why, that's the only way of the incarnation, namely to communicate the divine through the human. The human nature of our blessed Lord, this body of his, was the instrument of his divinity. When therefore our blessed Lord came as priest and as prophet and as king, everything he did was done through the power and the means of this human nature. If you heard our blessed Lord speak on the shores of Galilee, you would not say, oh, it's only a human tongue that is speaking. And he said to you, I am the truth. You say, how do I know God is speaking to me? That's why he became man. If he said to you, I forgive your sins, would you say, all I see is a lifted hand and the movement of lips? No, his body was the means by which he made himself applicable to us. Therefore, the best way to understand that the church is not just an institution is to understand it somewhat in the fashion of the body of Christ. And that's the way that St. Paul understood the church. And that's the way we have it in sacred scripture. Our blessed Lord, all through the Gospels, is saying that he's going to establish a new body, a new car, new people of God. After all, when people are united for a given purpose, they are a body. Now, our Lord did not use the word body precisely because his own physical body was before everyone. He used the word kingdom because that was a word that the Jews could understand, but when St. Paul was talking to the pagans, he had to use a word which was more understandable by them, namely the body. But our Lord communicated exactly the same idea. He said that, that the new people that he would communicate and unite with himself would be related to him as branches and vine. He said, you are the branches. I am the vine. And the truth that he had, he said he would give to them. My truth I give to you. My power I give you. And also he communicated the power to forgive sins. So our blessed Lord said that he would develop and form a new body which would be very small at first, like a mustard seed, and then grow and spread throughout the entire world. But what was the nucleus of this body? Well, we've already hinted at that. The nucleus, raw material of this new body, 
was the apostles. Now, just as my own human body, for example, is made up of millions and millions of cells, and yet it is one because vivified by one soul, governed by an invisible mind, presided over by a visible head, so all who later on will be incorporated into this new body of Christ will be one because vivified by one soul, the Holy Spirit, governed by an invisible mind, Christ in heaven, and presided over by a visible head, namely the one whom Christ chose at the beginning to bear the keys of his kingdom. Therefore, this body of Christ was to be the prolongation of his incarnation. Our Lord was to grow and expand, very much like a cell. We sometimes think that a church is formed by all of us coming together and saying, oh, let's get together and form a church, just like we form a tennis club. That's not the way the body of Christ was formed. People of God were not formed that particular way. God's power was in the midst of his people. Even your human body, when it began to be, was not formed that particular way. It was formed from, from cells of life. And those cells expanded outward. So this body of Christ doesn't grow like a house grows by the addition of brick to brick and door to door and wall to wall. It grows like a cell. First, there is this divine life that came to this earth, namely God in man. Starts with this humanity of Christ, this body of his. Now he says he's going to form this new body. It will not be a, a moral body or a political body, so he has to give it a new name. And the name that has been given to it through the centuries is mystical to indicate that the unity that binds it together does not come from men. It comes from his spirit from himself. That was why there had to be a Pentecost. Put a soul into this body. We will see a little later on. Now these 12 apostles that our Lord gathered to himself were very much like the chemicals in a the laboratory. They were very individualistic. They were very much like, as I say, the hydrogen and phosphates and sulfur and in a laboratory. In fact, we have in a laboratory 100% of all the chemicals that enter into the constitution of a baby. Why can we not make a baby? Because we lack that vivifying, unifying power, which is a soul. So the apostles, disparate, disconnected, disjointed, They could not form this body of Christ. They could be formed only by Christ sending his spirit into them. And as through the physical body of our Lord, it was God who taught. It was God who covered. It was God who sanctified. So through this new body of 
Christ. His church, his new kahal, his new people of God, the new Israel. He will teach. He will govern. He will sanctify. This is the church. See, it's a long way from an institution. Sometime, pick up the Acts of the Apostles and read the story of the conversion of St. Paul. Now, St. Paul was a member of the old Kahal, old Israel. And he therefore would not accept the revelation of the new Kahal, and he started to persecute the church. The time is well within ten years after the ascension of our blessed Lord into heaven. That's very important to remember. Now the church is beginning to spread through the entire Roman Empire. And Paul decides to go into Syria and to persecute the church there in Damascus. By this time, the early members of the church were very much disturbed by this learned Saul, for that was his Jewish name. I'm sure that many of members of the church in those days was to pray to the good Lord that he would send a good coronary thrombosis to Paul. And they must have said, Dear Lord, send us someone to answer Saul. He heard their prayers. He sent someone to answer Saul. He sent Paul. That was his Roman name. So on his way to Damascus, a light shines round about him. He's thrown from his beast. And he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 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 Why does our Lord say that? He's in heaven. How can anybody persecute him? No wonder St. Paul asks, Who art thou? And our Lord answers, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Saul must have thought within himself, after all, I'm only persecuting the members of the church in Damascus. How can I be persecuting you? How? If someone steps on your foot, do not your lips complain? Someone strikes your body, does not your head protest? Christ, the Son of the living God, is the head of the mystical body, the church. Therefore, when anyone struck that body, they struck him. And that is why our Lord protested. What then is the church? It's the people of God. His God. His ecclesia. His body. Prolonged through the centuries. In us, his poor members. The church is the mystery of God in the world for the salvation 
of the world. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me once again for an hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I would ask you to bring a friend next week, and until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.